If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn in them to the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. We are again going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this evening. But since chapter 3 isn't too long, I figured we'd read the entirety of it to keep it in context to see what Paul is praying for and in light of what he's praying. So Ephesians chapter 3. Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ." And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Then verse 14, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. This is the second prayer for the Ephesians, and this is the chunk of text we'll be working through this evening. Verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Last week, Paul began to conclude the first part of his letter to the Ephesians, containing his doctrinal instruction to them. And as a good pastor, Paul now prays for the people that he is writing to, that God would enable them to truly grasp the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, to apply it to their lives, which he's going to move into that application section in chapters 4 through 6. Just as he had prayed for them in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he now prays for them again here in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. He began in chapter 3, verse 1, as we saw, saying, for this reason I Paul, but then he went on a sidetrack, reminding the Ephesians that he was for them the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, who had had the mystery of Christ revealed to him through 
the Spirit, by the Spirit. What qualified Paul, again, to tell the Gentile believers in Ephesus that they were now fellow citizens with the saints, that they too were now members of the household of God, that the Gentiles were now fellow heirs of the same body and of partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. What made him qualified to do that, as we saw last week, was that Paul had been made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. He was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. He was Christ's prisoner, and he was also a physical Roman prisoner in a physical prison. And this is why Paul tells them not to lose heart at my tribulations for them. It was their glory that Paul was in prison. He was in prison for fulfilling his apostleship to them, to the Gentiles on behalf of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ had called him into the apostleship for the Gentiles, and in the exercise of that apostleship, he was imprisoned for them. He says, don't lose heart. It is for your glory. It is your glory that I suffer, that I am in tribulation. And thus, Paul now moves to pray for them. As an apostle to them, his concern was not himself, not his own sufferings, not his own tribulations. And he doesn't want them to concern themselves with his sufferings either and feel guilty or feel bad about the fact that Paul was suffering tribulations in prison for them. This would be a distraction for them. Paul's passion is the spiritual good of God's people. That's his concern, is the spiritual good of the church and churches in Ephesus, not his own suffering. His suffering was the direct result of his being a minister according to the gift of God's grace, verse 7 of chapter 3. And as a minister, though he couldn't preach to the Ephesian believers in person because he's in prison, he could pray for them from prison, and he prays for them in this letter that he's writing to them. If the Ephesians were going to see how the truths of God's, of Christ's gospel, of God's work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf, that they were now a new humanity through the cross of Christ, if they're going to see how those truths impacted their lives and radically changed everything, affecting every aspect of their lives, if they were going to walk worthy of the calling which they had in Christ, obeying the gospel imperatives that are forthcoming in chapter 4 through through six, then they must first be strengthened with God's might. They must first be rooted and grounded in Christ's love for them. They must comprehend something of this reality that they've entered into by the grace of God. And this is what Paul is praying for in these verses. So let's walk through it verse by verse. In verse 14, we read, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think Paul's continuing a thought that he started in verse 1, which begins with the same words in Greek and in English, for this reason. I think he's continuing that thought that he had started in verse 1 of chapter 3, but there are a few different opinions here. Uh, the, the other opinion is that he's referring more immediately to what he says in verses 7 through 10 about his apostleship, uh, that he's an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. But either of these answers is acceptable, and there's little difference between them, really. Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. He was made an apostle of Christ to make known the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, as he says in verse 6. 
And therefore, he now prays for the Gentile believers. He's an apostle of the Gentiles, so he's going to be praying for them. It is the duty of ministers, we should be reminded, of, of pastors, of ministers, of elders in churches, even today, to be much in prayer for their people. It's only half the work to, to study and to write sermons and to then uh, deliver those sermons and to preach them. That's only half of the work to proclaim the truth to the people. The other half, and arguably the most important, is to ask God to apply the truth of his word to his people. So a minister who only preaches to his people, but he does not pray that God would make the word effectual to them, that God would transform their lives, give them faith to lay hold of the promises in the word, give them the strength and the ability and the might to obey the commands of the word. If he only preaches, but he doesn't pray for God to make it effectual, it's like a person who, who draws a bath but he doesn't get in it and then wonders why he's still dirty. Or one who places wood on the hearth, but he doesn't, he doesn't light it, and he wonders why there's no heat in the house. God's people will be, not be much benefited. Uh, they won't be much benefited if only their ministers speak to them and God does not speak to them. Therefore, it's the duty of ministers in preparing their sermons and delivering their sermons and visiting with their people. It's the duty of ministers and elders and pastors to also be much in prayer for their people. And they follow, we follow the example of Paul here who prays as well as preaches. So Paul prays for God's people, that God would add his blessing to his word. And you see how dependent the Apostle Paul is on the power of God and his ministry. Paul wasn't clever in his ministry tactics. He wasn't a, a, a great orator in trying to just captivate people with his oratory skills. No, he relied on the power of God in his ministry. And this is the meaning of, I bow my knees. Uh, the shorthand uh, for, I pray. Paul is saying, I pray uh, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means when he says, I bow my knees. Now, there's a couple of comments that I think would be uh, at least interesting to make about prayer at this point when we look at this verse, verse 14. First, uh, in modern American Christianity, we give little thought to the subject of posture in prayer, what we do with our bodies in prayer. This, in part, stems from the modern tendency to disjoint or divorce our spiritual life from our physical bodies. And in this, we're truly more Gnostic than we know and probably more Gnostic than we would like to be and definitely more Gnostic than we should be. As one of my professors said, our bodies are not incidental to the life of faith. It's not incidental to life of faith. The modern tendency is to say something like, God does not care how we position our bodies when we pray. He doesn't care about that at all. We can pray standing up. We can pray sitting down. We can pray slouched over. We can pray lying on a bed. We can pray with our face on the floor. We can pray with our hands lifted up or our hands in our pockets. It makes no difference. God doesn't care. That's not what he's concerned about at all. What he's concerned about is our heart. He's only concerned about our heart. He doesn't care about what we do with our physical bodies when we're in worship or when we're in prayer. But is this really the case? Is it absolutely irrelevant? Is it, is it superfluous to God how we position our bodies when we lift up our souls to him in prayer? In one sense, the answer is yes, it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant how we posture our bodies in prayer. But in another sense, it's also resounding no. God is concerned with our physical posture in prayer. 
We are called to pray always, as we'll get to in chapter 6, verse 18. We're called to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And we're called to pray everywhere, in all places, 1 Timothy 2, 8. So it's not wrong to pray while driving. It's not wrong to pray while you're laying in bed and you're falling asleep at night. It's not wrong to pray while you're sitting at your desk at at work. We should pray always, and it's never wrong to give ourselves to prayer no matter what posture our physical body is in. Moreover, those who who are elderly, those who are infirmed, may only be able to pray while sitting or while lying down, and they too must pray at all times and without ceasing. So in one sense, yes, it's irrelevant what our bodies are doing in prayer in that sense. However, this does not mean that bodily posture is entirely irrelevant in prayer, or that there's not set patterns in Scripture which we can follow. This is true in both private and especially in corporate worship. Rather than being disconnected from it, our bodies are actually integral to our faith. Being a Christian doesn't mean we become a bodiless soul. So we have to do something with our bodies, namely honor God with them. As Paul says in Romans 12, chapter chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, everything laid out in the first 12 chapters, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, or you could translate spiritual service. So we see both the physical and the the invisible, the mental, the spiritual aspects at play there. We're supposed to offer up the whole person to the whole Christ, to all of God, all of ourselves to all of God. We must not be conformed to this world's way of thinking or acting, Paul goes on to say in that same chapter. Rather, we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world believes, as we see every day, that we can, what we do with our bodies is completely irrelevant to God, or at least it's none of God's business. That's what the world teaches us. It's irrelevant. It's none of God's business what we do with our bodies. But as Christians, we don't believe that. We don't believe that our bodies are our own. We believe that Christ is the Lord of our bodies too, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're not called as Christians, uh, whether it's private worship or corporate worship, we're not called as Christians to individualistic acts of piety. Rather, we're called to acts of piety that are in submission to God and in submission to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Again, this is especially true in corporate worship, but also in private. Uh, Speaking of corporate worship, the congregation is one body, And it ought to behave like it's one body. It's not every man coming to worship as he sees fit. I won't name the church, but it is here in town in Chandler that I visited some years back. I don't know if it's still this way, but when you walked into their very large sanctuary or or meeting hall, they had a section that had wooden pews, and they had a section that had bar stools with counters. They had a section that had movie theater seating that you could recline back in. They had a beanbag section, right? 
And it was kind of just pick and choose what you like best, what's most comfortable for you. And it was come as you, as you are and, and stay as you were, I guess, right? You come into church and you worship however you choose. No, that's not what we're called to do when we're summoned by the Lord of glory, by the head of the church, into the corporate assembly of his worship. It's not every man coming to worship as he sees fit. People over here speaking in tongues, people over here lifting their hands, people over here reciting prayers and, and whatever else, and, and the, the pastor's doing something, the elders are doing something. That's not what it is. That's called chaos. Rather, we are called to worship the one true and living God as one organism by one spirit. Whether in corporate or in private, the common patterns for bodily posture in prayer uh, in, presented to us in Scripture are standing, kneeling, and prostration, laying down face first before the Lord. Nowhere in the Bible do we find people sitting for prayer. Sitting is actually a posture of authority in the Bible. Sitting is what kings do on thrones. Sitting is what Jesus does when he teaches his disciples and he teaches the multitude. It's a posture for authority. Again, this is not to say that it's wrong or it's sinful to sit while praying. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we are looking at biblical patterns for postures in prayer. Jesus refers to standing as a common posture in prayer in Mark 11, verse 25. He says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah stood to pray and ask God's blessing on the battle in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles, that would be interesting if it was in Corinthians, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 13. We often find people lying prostrate on their face before God in prayer, especially in the book of Revelation we see this. But we also see it all throughout Scripture. For instance, David and the whole assembly, the, the men, women, and the children, all prostrate themselves in First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 20. All throughout Scripture, we also see people kneeling in prayer. Solomon's prayer of dedication, we read this in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 13, that Solomon knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. So to Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, knelt to pray with the people. Daniel knelt down toward Jerusalem three times privately in Daniel chapter 6. And Jesus knelt in the garden of Gethsemane and offered himself up to his father in prayer, Luke chapter 22, verse 41. This is the posture which the Apostle Paul here employs. In fact, it was so common to kneel in prayer, apparently he, he uses it as a shorthand for prayer itself. To bow the knees equals to pray. Regarding kneeling in prayer, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said this, quote, Kneeling is the most frequent posture used in worship, and nature itself seems to dic dictate and lead us to an expression of humility of a sense of our needs, of supplication for mercy, and of adoration of and dependence upon him before whom we kneel. This posture has been practiced in all ages and in all nations, even where the light of, of Scripture has never shined. So he's saying even in pagan religions, they kneel in prayer. If, we, if it might be done conveniently, it would certainly be a most agreeable posture for the worship of God in public, as well as in private families or in our secret chambers, end quote. 
In fact, it wasn't really until the, the modern times, the kind of mid-1900s, specifically in intentionally non-liturgical churches, that kneeling in prayer ceased to be kind of the standard thing you'd do, and sitting during prayer took prominence. Kneeling in prayer has been the predominant posture for prayer since there ever was a people of God on earth. The reason? It's uncomfortable. It keeps your attention while you're praying. And it also is humble. It's humiliating. It reminds us of our dependence upon God and our weakness before his majesty, our great need of his aid and his help. Again, this is not to say that it is ever wrong to sit while praying. That's not what I'm saying. But if we never kneel while praying, we should ask ourselves why, when we see that as the arguably predominant uh, posture for prayer in the scriptures and throughout church history. A second comment regarding prayer from verse 14. Paul says that he prays, he kneels to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the normal way, the normal method of prayer. It is addressed to God the Father by the power of the Spirit in the name of God the Son. Prayer to God the Father by the power of God the Spirit in the name of God the Son. This is because the Father is the fount of divinity, the old divines would say. We come to him, as Paul laid out in verse 18 of chapter 2, we come to him, the Father, through Jesus by the Spirit. This is the normal practice of New Testament prayer. Again, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to pray directly to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Each are persons of the triune God, and we are called to pray to God. In fact, we see people praying directly to Jesus. Stephen prays to Jesus directly uh, at his martyrdom. In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. However, again, this is not the normal pattern of New Testament prayer. The normal New Testament practice is to pray to the Father by the Spirit to the Son, through the Son. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, Paul said in chapter 2, verse 18 of Ephesians. The Father of Jesus is now our Father, and that's why Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. That's the main addressee, is the Father, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. There is a further theological reason why Paul addresses God as Father here. God the Father is the one, verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The word for family, patria, is derived from the word pater, meaning father, and it's where our English word patriarch comes from, head or ruler of a family or a clan. That's what a patriarch is. I know that we're told nowadays to smash the patriarchy. That's our duty is to smash the patriarchy, but we can't smash God's patriarchy. He is father of his whole family on heaven, of heaven and on earth. Uh, the Greek word can be translated as either every or whole. And some of your translations might reflect this. I think the ESV has every family, whereas here in the New King James and the King James, we have the whole family. So it can be translated, that Greek word underlining, underlying that word can be translated either every or a whole. If we take it as every family, that means every separate grouping of God's family, the angels, the saints on earth, and the saints in heaven. All of them have their origin. They are named in God the Father. 
or if we take it like our New King James has it, the whole family belongs to God and it bears his family name, as it were, because he is the father over this family. However it's translated, the important thing to highlight and to underline and to understand here is the unity of God's family being stressed, that God's family is in unity because they have one father who is God. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether they're departed and having already gone and been with the Lord or they're still here on earth, all the saints are equally members of God's family. He is the one father over them all. They all bear his name. They all have his name given to them. Paul's not praying to the father of the Jews. He's not praying to the father of the Gentile. He's not praying to the father of the Baptists or the Calvinists or the Lutherans. He is praying to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through union with him, all Christians make up one family with one father. That's the unity of the family of God. In Jesus Christ, God is the father of all the families of the nations that worship him, as Psalm 22, verse 27 says. There's no division within God's family. All who have been redeemed by, to him by Christ's blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, call him Father, just as they call Christ Lord. Revelation 5, 9. As a side note, I think this should teach us the great love that we ought to have for all of our brethren, for all Christians everywhere, no matter where they live or what age they lived in. We often forget that when we're studying church history. We're talking about Calvin and Augustine and all these other people from church history. I have to remember, these are our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, and they're with Christ. They're part of that one family. They still have only one father, and it's the same father that we have. Therefore, we can't lie about them. We can't misrepresent them. We can't hate them any more than we hate our Christian brothers that we've never met in India or Pakistan or, or anywhere else. We must love the brethren wherever they are to be found. In fact, many of our divisions, especially in Protestantism, many of our divisions really melt away and kind of seem silly in light of this great truth that is laid before us, that we all draw near to the same Father through the same Son by the same Spirit. Verse 16, he prays that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. This is now Paul coming to the content the main content of his prayer for the church in Ephesus. He prays that God would grant, he would, he would give them out of the riches of his own glory to be strengthened with power, with, with might through his own Holy Spirit. And he prays that they would be strengthened in the inner man. First, we must see that Paul knows that this is only something God can give. God must give this gift. This is not something that the Ephesians can do. This is not something that Paul can do for them. What Paul is asking God to do is not something that anyone can do except God, and that's why he is coming to God and asking him to do so. As we shall see, Paul is asking that the Ephesians would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible, to be filled with all the fullness of God, and to know Christ's unknowable love. What Paul is asking for is the impossible. He's asking for God to do the impossible. But 
all things are possible with God. That's why he's asking. And so he prays that God would give what only he can give. What is being asked for is something that will, that will require the riches of God's glory to accomplish. This is not something the Ephesians or us can provide. This is only something God can give out of the riches of his own glory. God must do it out of his own rich storehouse. He must do it in and through Christ by the, by the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we know that he is willing to do so. He's willing to give this. That's why Paul prays confidently and boldly, as he had said previously in verse number 12. The Holy Spirit will cause the Ephesians to be strengthened with might. He prays that the Holy Spirit would do this. The Holy Spirit would strengthen uh, the, the Ephesians with might, with ability, with power to comprehend the mystery of the gospel that he references in verse 18. And apart from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's strengthening the Ephesians with power, apart from this, if he does not take the riches of God's glory and apply them to the inner man and strengthen the inner man of the Ephesians, they shall not be able to do what Paul is going to ask God to cause them to do in the rest of this prayer, and what he's going to give them the imperative to do, gospel imperatives in chapters 4 through 6. Paul asks as they will be strengthened with might in the inner man. Okay, what is the inner man? This is none other than the regenerate man. The new creation in Christ that Paul elsewhere speaks of, 2 Corinthians 5.17. For Paul, the inner man is the man who delights in the law of God, Romans 7.22. The man who sees the heinousness and evil of his sin and cries out, O wretched man that I am, Romans 7, verse 24. The inner man is equivalent to the new man in Paul's theology, whom Paul says in chapter 4, verse 24, was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, Colossians 3, chapter 10. The inner man is the spiritually alive man versus the spiritually dead state that they once were in. He's the one who has received the new birth. He's the one who's, because he has received the new birth, he's been born again, he's now able to receive the good gifts of God, which have been obtained by Christ through the Spirit. This is the key to the whole of what Paul is praying. If, if they've not been brought from death to life, if they've not been born again, if they've not received regeneration and renewal, then they cannot be strengthened by God's Spirit in the inner man, because there is no inner man. Paul is praying for their spirit-powered sanctification, but they must be regenerated before they can be sanctified. And so he also prays in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This verse, I think, is the basis of the simple catechism question that many of us use with our very young children. Where does Jesus live? Pat to your chest. He lives in my heart. Where does Jesus live? In my heart. It's simple, but it's profound. It's also a mystery. As John Murray points out, the specifics of the Spirit's indwelling and of Christ taking up residence in our heart as believers is a mystery that is better confessed than it is expressed. It's something we must simply confess. Jesus lives in our hearts. It's a mystery, but it's a mystery that is nonetheless true. Christ dwells in the believer's heart. 
He is Lord over the whole life. He's not simply dictating uh, what the Christian can or cannot do with his body. But Christ, as supreme Lord, also takes up residence in the believer. He, he dwells in the believer's heart. And this dwelling, Paul says, is through faith. We must believe it, not seek to explain it or build a systematic theology around it. We must believe it. The one who feeds on Christ by faith is actually promised by the Lord Jesus Christ that he will dwell in them just as they do in him, John 6, 56. He also says in John 14, verse 23, Jesus speaking, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus dwells in our hearts through faith. The Spirit strengthens us with might in the inner man to believe and to rest upon this reality. And it is from this reality that Christians are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It is God who works in them. The Spirit strengthening them by the riches of God's glory in the inner man and Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. It's God who works in them to will and to do for his good pleasure. This reality causes them to be rooted and grounded in love. Having Christ dwelling in our hearts means that we're rooted and grounded in love. This is not surface level. This is, this is deep. We're, we're rooted. The foundation of our building is here. We're, we're rooted like a tree that bears fruit. Its, its roots go down deep. The love of God demonstrated toward us, toward us in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very foundation upon which we should and must build our whole lives. Every facet of it, every aspect of it must be built upon this truth. This life that we live as Christians and as the church corporately is lived through faith from first to last. Faith that Christ is dwelling in us, in our very hearts, that God's spirit strengthens us, and that Christ's love, as Paul says, constrains us. It compels us and governs us in our actions, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. This love takes captive a man or woman. It takes captive a believer and makes him Christ's alone. We are called to continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, Paul says in, first, or in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. And it's only once we are rooted, once we are grounded in the love of God, that we can live unto him. We must first be rooted and grounded in Christ. And we can only do this through faith in God's gracious work in us by his Holy Spirit. This, again, is not something that we can do. We can go get the strength. We can go get the might. We can go get the power. And this is something that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, rooting us in love, the fact that Christ dwells in us through faith. Being rooted and grounded in love also means being prepared and equipped to do all that God requires of us. Love's not just some emotional state. He's not just talking about how, how we feel here. Love Biblical love, true love, is expressed in acts of obedience to God. As Jesus says in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments, okay, we have them, but that's not enough, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. There can be no grounding in love 
without obedience. And there can be neither apart from faith. It all must start and continue and end in faith in Christ. And even this faith, as we saw in chapter 2, must be given and strengthened by God through his spirit. And this is why Paul is praying for them. It's God's gracious gift to them from first to last. That means that the, the more they understand God's love to them in Christ, the more rooted they will be in that love, the more grounded they will be in it. And the more they are rooted in love, the more vigorously and joyously they will serve God. That's the key to joyful living before God, is obedience, and obedience that flows out of gratitude toward God for what he has done in Christ, meaning it's grounded in faith in Christ, and the love of God revealed to us in Christ. This is why Paul continues to pray in verses 18 and 19, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul's praying, again, that they will grasp the ungraspable. They will know the unknowable. They will comprehend the incomprehensible. Paul wants them to understand something of the true extent of Christ's love for them, of God's love for them in Christ. God's love for us as believers in Christ is multidimensional. We can no more grasp the multidimensional love of Christ than we can comprehend what it would be like to have a four-dimensional existence. But still, Paul prays that God will cause them and us, see that word, those words, all the saints. Paul prays that God will cause them, the Ephesians, and us, all the saints, to do so, to comprehend something of this. We may think of the width and length of Christ's love as the extent of his love to the four corners of the earth, embracing all that the Father has given to him from every nation and people. We can conceive of the depth and height as the depths of humility to which Christ bowed when he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8, and the heights of glory to which he is now exalted at the right hand of God, Romans 8.34. But this, think, conceiving of them like, like that in those terms, while it's true, I think might go beyond Paul's point here. His point is that Christ's love cannot be measured. His love cannot be measured. It goes in every direction. It goes across dimensions. It bursts through all limits. It bursts through all ability to comprehend it. And yet he prays that it would be comprehended by the Ephesians and by us. In comprehending the incomprehensible, which is only done by the Spirit, Paul asks for something even more astonishing. He asks that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for finite beings. The Ephesians were human beings just like you and I. He's praying that finite beings would be able to contain the fullness of the one infinite being, God. It's like praying that a glass of water would be able to contain all the water from all the oceans on all the worlds in all the universes. It's simply unfathomable. But in Christ, this is actually the reality. It's actually the reality. In him, we read in Colossians 2, dwell, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
And Paul says we are therefore complete in him, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. By union with him, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, and so the fullness of God also fills us. This too is incomprehensible, but it's what he says. It's what he's praying for. Be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, Paul's prayer is aimed at their sanctification. It's aimed at their growth in grace. He wants them to know so they can live. He is praying that they would be filled to capacity by God's Spirit, thus empowered for service. Paul is praying for the church, not just a single individual uh, Ephesian. He's 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 praying for all of the Christians in Ephesus and indeed all of the saints. He's praying for the church to be equipped to be the church and to do the work of the church, as we'll see in chapter 4. And in order to do this, the church must be full, not of herself, but of God. For the saints to do the work of the ministry, for the body of Christ to be edified or built up, the church must first be filled. And this is why Christ descended and ascended that he might fill all things, as we will see in Ephesians 4.10. The church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 23. This is why Paul prays that they would be filled, so that they would be equipped to be the church, to be the church and to live as the church. The church must be filled with God. Let's remember that the church lives by the power of God from first to last. She's filled up by his fullness that she can pour out on others. But too often the church forgets that her path to victory is not the path which the world follows to victory. We cannot employ worldly methods, worldly strategies entertainment, kowtowing to whatever is popular in culture at the time or whatever political thing people are saying, kowtowing to that and and going along with that, employing that, and then assume that we will see godly results. We can't ape the world if we want to make disciples of all nations. We must be full of God, relying upon his power and his strength. We must fight God's war with God's weapons, namely the armor that he gives us in Ephesians chapter 6. And we must wield them, not by our own strength, but by his power in and through us. Paul prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God, and so we also must pray for ourselves and for all of Christ's church that we would be also. We must also remember that this is not all happening in some spiritual realm somewhere. It's not happening in some spiritual realm somewhere. Being filled with the fullness of God is in the church. It happens now. It happens in physical bodies. It impacts our lives, how we live, how we work, how we think, how we love, how we interact with those around us. That's what being filled with the fullness of God looks like and does. Paul prays that Christians would be rooted and grounded in love. Well, where does love come from? God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Being filled with his fullness, therefore, fills us with love. And being filled with the fullness of God must therefore have a corresponding growth of presence and practice of love in our lives. 
If we're not growing in love toward one another, toward the saints, especially the household of God, but towards our neighbors and towards God himself, if we're not growing in love, if we're not practicing love, we cannot assume or think or say that we are full of God. As Christians, we are called to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and to grow up in all things into him who is the head, namely Christ. Paul says in chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, the Spirit has poured the love of God into our hearts where Christ dwells, Romans 5, 5. And therefore, he will empower us to walk in and out of that love, shining as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. Paul prays that Christians will be love-fueled, God-filled, Christ-indwelt, and spirit-empowered ambassadors of Jesus' gospel. How could we possibly be that or do that? We must have God. Do we see our need and our dependence upon God? And this is why Paul is praying for them and why we continue to ask God to fill us as well. Paul then closes his prayer and doxology in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul asks God to do the unfathomable because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above. Paul is running out of superlatives. It's actually kind of funny to see how English... Bible translations differ here and try to express uh, these, these Greek words. He, he's, he's almost running out of ways to say this exceedingly abundantly above what he asks. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what Paul asks. What Paul asks for is truly impossible with or by man, but it's not impossible for God. God is able not only to do what Paul asks, but far beyond, almost inexpressibly far beyond, what Paul asks or could even think of asking. What grand encouragement this should be to you and I in prayer. This should give us confidence in prayer. This should give us encouragement to pray. The power that is already at work in us by the Holy Spirit in the inner man, Christ in our hearts, dwelling in our hearts by faith or through faith, The power that's already at work in us gives us confidence that we can ask for more, that we truly belong to God, and that we can never out-ask what God can give and provide. He can do more than we could even think. God, as Jesus says, the Father in Matthew 6, 8, knows the things we have need of before we ask him. And he will therefore gladly give us what we ask for. The riches of his glory are, are never exhausted. They, they never can be exhausted. And this is how he can do more than we ask. The reason we have not is because we ask not, as James says in 4.3. The answer to prayer, you notice in this verse, comes by God's power, not ours. When we're asking God in prayer, for that which is according to his will, when we're pouring ourselves out to him and we're asking him for more of Christ, more of his spirit, more strength, more holiness, when we're praying to God and asking him for these things, we are not thinking that we are going to convince God. That's by us that our prayers will be answered. It's by God's power and thus by God's will and not our own. 
It all relies on God. All these things are good gifts from our Father. It's true that we must ask in accordance with His will, but we like to bring that in way too often, I think, and it stops us from praying altogether. We should hang on the fact that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Of course, pray according to God's will, but we don't always know God's will, do we? We have his revealed will to us in the word and in his, in his law. We know that we shouldn't ask for things that are sinful, of course, things that are wrong, but we should go to our Father knowing that he's able. We can't out-ask what God can give. What Paul here asks, that Christians would comprehend the love of Christ, they'd be rooted and grounded in that love, that they'd be filled with all of God's fullness, is certainly within God's will. God does in us what is impossible for us to conceive of on our own and what is impossible for us to do on our own. That's why we should never cease praying for our children. We should never cease praying for our friends and family, our coworkers, our, our, our loved ones, people that we've been discipling and sharing the gospel with. Nor should we ever cease praying for one another or for the broader church. We may not know how it, how it shall come to pass that Christ will dwell in them, but we must not cease laboring in faithful prayer and discipleship to form Christ in them, as Paul says in Galatians 4.19. That's because nothing is too difficult for God. This is why Paul sings God's praise in closing, saying in verse 21, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is the one who does the work. Therefore, God is the one who deserves the praise. The praise goes to him because he does the work. It's not how good we are, how persuasive we are in our prayers, how holy we are, how obedient we are. No, it's God's grace alone as a gift. It's his power. Therefore, he gets the praise. It's, in, it's indicative of our spiritual uh, viewpoint that it's off, that our spiritual viewpoint is off when we hesitate to give God the glory and all things that belong to him. What about what I've done? What about my prayers? What about the hard labor I've done? No, all these things are gifts. You, you wouldn't be able to work the way you work had it not been for the grace of God empowering you. To, to evangelize the way you evangelize had it not been for the Spirit's equipping of you and empowering of you in the inner man. But I think it's interesting too, and I did want to highlight this before we close. It says, to him be glory in the church. In the church. The church is to the place in which God is given the glory most readily. At least it's supposed to be. It's a place where God's glory is displayed by Jesus Christ to all generations. It's the church. Now, when I, we, th- we read verse, chapters like, or, or psalms like Psalm 19, in which the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The firmament declareth his handiwork. We think of creation and the constellations and, and this great mountain right next to us over here as displaying the glory of God, and it certainly does. His wisdom, his power, his, his glory is displayed in those things also, but, but not like it is in the church. When we think of the church as a place full of, of messy people, people like you and I, all sorts of brokenness and, and shattered lives sometimes coming in or, or even in the church, all sorts of uh, not-so-nice things. This is where the glory of God is displayed? That's what Paul says. It's in the church by 
Christ Jesus. It's him gathering a people unto himself, him redeeming them and saving them and pouring out his spirit upon them and that spirit taking the riches of God's glory and strengthening them with might in the inner man, transforming their lives, renewing their lives, cleansing their lives, conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the telos of it all. That's the end goal of it all is being conformed to the image of of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the glory can be displayed in the church, because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the reflection of Jesus Christ as being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now we can look around right now and think about the church, whether it's this local church or the broader church or denomination, whatever you want to say, and go, well, it doesn't look so glorious sometimes. There's a lot of spots and wrinkles. There's a lot of sin There's a lot of error. There's a lot of all these things. But on the last day, it shall not be. On that day, she shall be presented before God, the bride of Christ, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish or any such thing, in white robes. So yes, in the church, by Jesus Christ, that's the place where the glory of God is displayed for all generations. And that's why we can look back through uh, this epistle and, and... in the Bible and in the book of Acts and look through church history and look through uh, these, these amazing stories of saints and Christians who have gone before us and see the glory of God by Jesus Christ on display in his church. Now that should transform the way we live now, I think. If we know that we will be standing monuments for Christ's glory, for all eternity, for all generations, not just our children, but our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren will look back and see Christ's glory in us, then how much more should we labor to adorn that with holy living, with faithful living, with gratitude wrought obedience and love to Jesus Christ? That should transform the way we live. Each generation, every generation, past, present, and future, forever and ever, declares God's glory and the redemption of a sinful people in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore live in accordance with that truth. Let us come before the Lord our God in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we are again thankful for this time to gather together to read thy word. Lord, we ask that by thy spirit we would be strengthened, we would be equipped, we would be helped and aided and taught, that we would comprehend something of Christ's love, that we would see it more clearly, O Lord, and that we would live in accordance to that truth, to that reality, O Lord. We thank Thee for the gospel. We thank Thee for Thy work in the church, though sometimes it's messy, though it's often sinful and and sometimes objectively ugly in the church. We, We know that the eschatological end of it all is that she shall be glorious, that she shall stand before Thee without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, O Lord. Therefore, help us to live in such a way that we we glorify Thee, that we make that monument, we make that trophy of Christ's love and sacrifice all the more beautiful and glorious by our holy adornment. Oh God, empower us to do so. Lord, as we leave from this place, please help us to get home safely. Please continue to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Day and the hearts of those who are unable to attend with us this evening. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.